worship, great song. As I was uh, preparing for the message today, I started chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Pastor Jonathan came up here last week and shared about Solomon and his journey. And as I've, as I've read the scriptures before, I've never been implored to I've look at chapter 10 the way the Holy Spirit is speaking. And he's speaking once again to his children. He's speaking to believers. He's saying, hey, I've placed you in this race. I want you to walk. I want you to keep your eyes on me and follow me. Though all the distractions in the world may come, no, 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 all of the trials that's set for you may come and all of the temptations may become that will come your way if you keep your eyes fixed on me and follow me, then you'll make it home. We can have all these ideas uh, of, I'll just say it, once saved, always saved, and then you can live any way you want to. Uh, like I said before, I can't find that in the scriptures. Titus, and I should have put it down. I put it in my mind many years ago, so I'll paraphrase it. The grace of God, he gives us the grace of God so that we can walk properly, testifying to what Christ Jesus has done in our lives. I heard someone say, hey, we're still in chapter 10 of the book of 1 Corinthians. God has it here, and he has it here for a purpose, and it's for our, for our admonition. That's why this book is here. Uh, we left off in verse 13. Paul had given us this admonition, and it's important because we want to make it home. We want to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he had placed the children of Israel, graciously placed them into their Christian race, into their Christian walk. And that was all, by the way, by his grace. And then in verse 1, the latter part of it, it says, they were under the cloud. The manifestation of God was with them because they were born again. He says they, were all, they all passed through the sea, that Christian baptism. All were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. And as I was thinking about that, they all ate the same spiritual food on their way, on their walk in the wilderness, did God feed any other people with this manna and water? Did he feed the Egyptians with this manna or water? No, because they weren't born again. He feeds his children. He says, all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drink of that spiritual rock that followed them. And we all know that rock was Jesus Christ. Paul, what he's doing, he's equating the manna and the parting of the Red Sea as baptismal sacraments, because we're looking at it in the New Testament, that spiritual privilege and food, like the bread and wine that we will be taking next week, that we take every first Sunday of the New Covenant, those sacraments. Christ is the source of our spiritual food. 
the children of Israel, they were privileged by grace and they were placed by God in the race to be his people. That's Paul's entire point that he's making in, in, in this chapter here. The things are written, he says, for our examples. And, and, and God didn't do this to the children of Israel so we would have an example. God said, since they messed up, since they blew it, I'm still going to use it for my glory so it'll be an example to the New Testament's Christians for their race. He says, do not become idolaters as were some of them. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We talked about that when I was up here last time. Really, what they really did, they got distracted. Verse 8 warns of sexual immorality. Verse 9 warns of tempting and testing God. Verse 10, we should listen to this, warns Victor of complaining. It's when we think we know Better than God, we start to grumble. Why didn't you do it this way? Why didn't you do it that way? We don't like his plan for us. And we tell God we have a better way of doing things. Verse 11, Paul says by the Holy Spirit, and all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Pastor Jonathan gave us a good example of idolatry last Sunday with King Solomon. Idolatry doesn't have always to do with sexual immorality. It can be anything that supplants God's supremacy in our hearts. We could be attracted to a car and we have an eye. We could be attracted and so uh, inundated with our job and our job becomes an idol. Our family can become an idol. And God says, no, 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 no. Serve me. Keep your eyes on me, and I'll make those other things, family, marriage, all those other things better in your life if you keep your eyes on me. But like Solomon, who had all the privilege of knowing God, as Pastor Jonathan said, God said, hey, I love Solomon. But I don't think Solomon finished well. With all of the blessings, with all of the favors of God, he squandered it. Idolatry stumbled him, and he couldn't recover. What Solomon did is truly he fixed his eyes on the now instead of the then. We will always walk better if we fix our eyes on the then instead of the now. That's where most people, believers, get it twisted. Remember in that great hall of faith, the Holy Spirit, he commends Moses 
and gives us a glimpse of why Moses stayed focused. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He discarded the worldly rights, choosing, so he had to make a choice, and we all must make a choice, rather to suffer affliction. Those two words, suffer affliction, the Greek is suke kako kelomai. That first word, suffer, it means to endure persecution, people treating you wrongly. And then affliction comes in on your walk to the Lord, a scourge, a plague, a calamity, misfortune, distressing bodily disease. That's what he accepted. Whatever comes my way, Lord, it doesn't matter. I want to get home with you. He gave all that up, uh, the Bible says, with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin in this world. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? For he looked to his reward. That's what every believer must do. His heart was set on the then instead of the now. We stopped at verse 13, and these final sentences of this paragraph are among the better known in scriptures, but most likely it never is talked about in its context. So he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Your temptation is not unique. God comes back with, but God is faithful who will not allow you, give the temptation or permission to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Paul reassures the Corinthians and us that we need not fail any temptation or any trial because the eternal God has already, when he set us on the starting line, made a divine commitment to us. When it comes, this is the point, when it comes to everyday trials, we might use the word when it comes to ordinary trials. That is to our human condition. God's got us. God's prepared us. God is with us. When trials come, and they will, when temptations come, and they will, God has us. And we need to keep this, what he's saying, in context here. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and us, by continuing in the cultic meals that they are doing with pagan friends, they put themselves in grave danger of falling. But the temptation to do so as or as we walk with the Lord is unnecessary because the temptation is not such of a nature that should make us trip up, that should make us fall because there's a divine calling in our lives. The Holy Spirit is with us. God's prior faithfulness to the children of Israel is his point. He comes back with, but God is faithful even through the trial or the temptation, meaning God can be counted on. 
And he does this in two ways, Paul. First, God has pledged. He goes on to say, who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able. I equate this as I was reading this. It's all bound up in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. He, he literally almost says the same thing, even though he uses different words and phrases here. He says in, in Ephesians, in him, the believers, what we're talking about here, where they fail, God tells us in him, Christ Jesus, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That doesn't change. It's still true. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? God is saying, I'm going to do my part to get you where I, I want you in heaven. That's what he's saying here. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? It speaks of God's prior activity in behalf of his people. You know, he knew when he chose us, all the trials and all the temptations you would undertake, and he still picked you. No surprise to God, but he also knew when he chose us that we would be called to endure. We must be prepared to endure. Jesus, speaking to a great crowd that was following him, he says, I better give them a, a good word. I hope they're not following me just because of the things I can give to them. Let, let me tell them something. He says in Luke chapter 14, he says, for which of you tending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So that tells me there's some that starts, but they don't finish. Even I, a high school graduate, knows that. I can read that. That's what it says. Are you able to finish, my brothers and sisters? We will be called in this life to endure. We must be prepared for a long obedience. God has pledged not to allow what is beyond our endurance. But on the other side of the coin, we must remember when we are tempted, he says, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I want you to read that carefully. It sounds contradicting there. Making the way of escape that we may bear under it. There is a way out or in to whatever testing we might undergo. But the key is seen on God's side. The finish line is seen on his side, on his perspective. You may yet have much to endure before the end is realized, but we must trust the faithful God to provide the end for us. What he's saying is in ordinary human trials, we could use the word in ordinary day-by-day -day trials, 
God is faithful. His divine aid is there to help us in those everyday trials. There is no danger of us falling in those everyday trials. But it is otherwise, it is otherwise when it comes to idolatry. Paul is getting the Corinthians to understand that they run no risk of sinning and falling away from the faith if, if they have only to encounter the temptation God allots them. He allows to happen in their lives. But they have no pledge. That's what Paul is saying. They have no pledge of victory. Whatever in the case of temptations into which we throw ourselves into. There are some temptations that you know, you, you, I, I can't watch this movie. I can't do this. I can't do that. But when I go and sit right down beside a temptation, there's no divine help. That's what God is saying. I want you to understand this. Believers, some sins are so incompatible with the life of Christ, that sure judgment, and I'm not talking, I am talking about a loss of salvation is inevitable if we persist in them. That's what the scripture says. And we're talking about deliberate acts predicated on a false security that put God to the test. That's what this chapter is all about as though daring God to judge one who has been baptized into Christ. Before I got saved, I would get picked up when my first cousin, we, he, this guy would come and pick us up, and he said he was a Christian, but I would get in the car because he was driving, and I would drink, and I would get high, and I'm riding with him. But then he would start telling me he was saved, and me being a non-believer sitting in the back seat that's been the church all my life, but I wasn't a believer, I said, now, this doesn't add up. This guy's telling me he's saved, and he's talking about women, what he does, and all this stuff, and he's getting high, and, he, and he's drinking, and he tells me he's a believer. Myself, being an unbeliever at the time, knew something was wrong with that picture. I knew something was wrong with that picture. As my grandmother used to say, don't fool your faith. It's written down here, if I'm a believer, how I should walk. Not perfectly, I won't do it perfectly, but I won't splurge into sin. Such blatant disobedience, Paul assures us, is headed for destruction. That's what this chapter is all about. But on the other side, he gives them the faithful God is ready to aid those that endure trials, assuring them that there is a way out and an end to it. And that's why we say thanks be to God. Paul brings this paragraph to a close. The Corinthians they had begin with his, with him, he, they were saying they forbid you, Paul was forbidding them to eat at these feasts at the temple. And he finally asserts an absolute restriction against idolatry, having warned the, the Corinthians 
of the same possibility, he now ends with a tender appeal to them. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, after all I've said, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And this is given, we have to understand, in the context of food they are going to the temple, at the pagan temples and eating. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee. Safety is found in flight from idolatry. Earlier, Paul, because he's speaking of eating at an idol's temple, early Paul, Paul has said, flee from sexual immorality. You know, as long as we remain obstinate, and I say, I can do this and I can handle this temptation, counting on our own strength, we open ourselves up to failure and bondage. Sometimes the best thing to do is to flee, run, escape, leave the temptation site. You'll never find victory over temptation when you court it in mild tolerance. Paul begins to show them, since the Corinthians say they are sensible people, he gives the example of the Lord's table. And what Paul is doing to the Corinthians, because they had prodded themselves on understanding such things. And so Paul tells them in verse 15, I speak to sensible people. And when he says, judge for yourselves what I say, it's what he's about to say he wants them to judge, that he's right on. And then he gives an example of the Lord's table. He says in verse 16, the cup of the blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, we have to understand the meal is not the present focus of Paul's concern, but the focus of the sacred pagan table and the similarities between that and the Lord's table. Paul's argument is there is something inherent in the nature of the Christian meal, the Lord's Supper that we take every first Sunday, that makes participation in the pagan's meal, it's incompatible. Paul's saying, why are you doing, why are you at both these tables? It's not right. That something is described, and we've heard the word before, as koinonia. We always talk of the koinonia when we have afterglow and things like that. And koinonia, it has to do with the worshipers themselves. But the basic and focus of their worship was on the deity. That's where the catch comes who in cases they considered at these pagan tables that the deity was right there as they ate their food. Now, we are believers, but yet we go to the pagan temples and we eat their food. And Paul is going to finally says in the end, you shouldn't be doing that. Paul's point and emphasis is that in sacred meals known as koinonia with the deity, there's fellowship. Remember in the Old Testament, and they would give them sometimes in the New Testament. Every time I wanted to, when you would take a sacrifice to the temple, you usually didn't get any meat back. That meat became the priest. They would get a part of the meat, the breast, and the Lord would take something else. But when you would go and offer a fellowship offering, it was like a grill out. It was like a barbecue. 
and you would get to participate in eating the meal. And that's why Paul says, when you go to these pagan temples, don't you know that you're eating meals unto demons? He will go on and say that. Remember, and I, if I was offering any offering, of course, I would never take a sin offering to the altar because I wouldn't sin. But <laughs> you call that. But I would love taking a fellowship offering there because I would partake of it. I would eat. Yahweh had commanded the Jews that when you go, I will be there and you will be eating in my presence. That's all the fellowship walking offering was. Remember Hannah, when she had uh, dedicated, had prayed for a son, God gave her Samuel, and she goes back to the temple, and she offers a fellowship offering there. That's fellowship. That's time with the Lord. That's koinonia. We're in agreement. We're honoring somebody. We're honoring the blessings that the Lord has given us. Lord, thank you for being so kind. Thank you for answering my prayers. Or if I made a vow to the Lord, I would go and offer a fellowship offering. And we're fellowshipping with them. We're doing that with them. Koinonia has to do with the worshiper themselves. But the basis and focus of the offering is the deity, who in most cases was considered right there always. Paul is, and what Paul is doing, he's emphasizing the bonding relationship of the worshiper with one another that the meal expresses. Verse 17 will make it perfectly clear. He says, for we, though many, are one bread. Speaking of the Corinthians, really he's speaking to us, every believer, the church of Jesus Christ, every participant, every believer he's speaking to. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now, notice, I want you to notice the order of the sequence here. It's the cup and the bread. Verse 16, it's unique in the New Testament. Every first Sunday, I will end by saying this, 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 25, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Notice bread comes first here. He goes on to speak, and then you get the cup after. But the standard sequence is the bread and the cup. And I believe the reason Paul changes the order is he has chosen to interpret the bread because of the present argument he's having. So it emphasizes the solidarity of the fellowship created by their all sharing the one loaf. And once again, distinctively, the religious nature of the feast indicates that worship of the deity was involved. And so they most likely considered the deity also to be present in some way at the meal. That's Paul's entire beef, especially in Judaism. Yahweh, when you ate, in some way, Yahweh was right there watching and fellowshipping with them. Likewise, in the pagan mills, suggest that their God himself will act as host. But this is especially true in Christian's mill. 
If you remember the first Passover, and it shows a great example, when Jesus tells his disciples to go get a room, don't worry about it, the God will let you in, and we will have our Passover before he was crucified. Jesus is there sitting at the table. What are they doing? Having Passover with the deity that was there, Jesus Christ, partaking of the bread, partaking of the wine. That's what Paul is speaking of right here. In some way, they're there specifically. Even when Jesus is resurrected and goes to heaven, now in some way, his presence is with us when we take that bread and wine, he's here with us. That's what Paul is saying. That's koinonia. That's intimacy. Because when the Jews would get together, they just wouldn't eat bread and dinner with, with a, a, especially a Gentile. Because what I was eating was assimilating in me, and what you were eating was assimilating in you, and we became one at the dinner. And that's what happens at, at, at the Lord's table. And that's why Paul is saying, be careful what, what you're doing. And I want to say this, the evidence and the language does not permit any of this transubstantiation thing that when you're eating the wafer, especially in the Catholic church, you're eating the wafer and drinking the wine, you, you are partaking of Christ himself. That's not true. That's not biblically. The deity is there. That's why they slaughtered the animal first. They've had the sacrifice, and you're eating with the deity. That's what's happening. He's there, and you're enjoying the meal with him. But you're, you're not taking or you're not, being, you're not eating Jesus Christ at all. So we got to be sure of that. The fellowship was a celebration of their common life in Christ based on our new covenant that had previously bound them together in union with Christ. That's why we eat the Lord's Supper. But while their fellowship was with one another, its basic and focus was on Christ, no doubt. His death, his resurrection, they were in his presence. They were at his host, at his, they were host at his table. Christ shared anew with them the benefits of his atonement. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's the unique relationship between believers and the Lord, and they celebrated this meal that makes it impossible to go to a pagan table and eat with demons. That's what Paul is saying. You, you, you can't do both. And he will go on to say that. Paul gives honor to the bread that we break. And that bread, it speaks of the Jewish meal when they would eat together. Matter of fact, it says in Acts 2, verse 46, Paul says, so continuing, continuing daily with one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. There's, there's something that happens when you eat, especially when you go over to someone's house and you, you're friends and you're eating. There's a closeness that you become. That's why, the, that's why it's good for the church to have meals and eat together. 
We just don't do it to get fat like me. We do it. We assimilate with one another. We, we grow tighter and closer to one another with meals. Jesus knew that. Paul would go on to interpret the bread in terms of the church and as Christ's body. You ever notice that? The church is the body of Christ, and we're eating the bread, and it's still a part of him. That's how close the believer is to Christ. Verse 18, he says, he gives them another example. He says, observe Israel. I like the ESV. It says, consider the people of Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers, that's our word, koinonia, partners, participants of the altar? The context tells us that Paul is referring to the meals prescribed in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 14, 23 to 27. And he's not talking about the priests who would uh, uh, cut up the meal, cut up the animal, and then have the meal. He's talking about the people who would be there to eat the meal. The language, what he says, eat of the sacrifices, refers to the meal that followed the actual sacrifice. He says, are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers, koinonia partners, participants of the altar? Verse 19, Paul has argued that eating food at the pagan's temple is not right. And then Paul, when he hits the town in Corinth, they, they, I told you from the beginning, they were upset with Paul. Paul had written them two letters. They had wrote, wrote Paul. Paul had written them back two letters. And they said, Paul is restricting us so much. But I've seen Paul, and he's eating at the pagan's temple. Why is that? He's telling us not to eat, but he's eating there. So Paul has to straighten them out on this and make sure they know what he's saying because he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one. So that's what Paul is straightening out right now. In verse 19, he says, what am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? He says, of course not. That's their intended response Paul wants from them. An idol really has no reality in the sense that an idol does not represent what might truly be called a god. An idol is no god. But there's a supernatural power Paul is trying to get them to understand that comes through idol worship. That's why he says in verse 20, that's why Paul doesn't want them eating at an idol's table. He says, rather that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. That's all Paul is trying to get them to understand. In the Song of Moses, the Holy Spirit writes this, Deuteronomy 32, 17, 17. God tells them this, they sacrifice demons not to God. Israel, speaking of Israel in the desert, they rejected God, their rock, because they begin to sacrifice to demons. 
Psalms 96 verse 5 speaks of that. It says, for all the gods of the peoples are demons. There's no other god but one. So if you're worshiping a so-called god, you're really worshiping a demon. He says in Psalms 106:38, and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. These pagans are no doubt sacrifices to demons. And his point is, one who is already bound to the Lord's table and fellowshipping with the believers through participation of the Lord's table cannot under any circumstances also participate in the worship of demons. God is is not going to put up with that. Knowing this, Paul applies, and he really throws a, I can't think of any good boxers now, but he throws a knockout punch here. Verse 20, the latter part, he says, and I do not want you to have fellowship, kononia, partnership with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot serve this person and let it become an idolatry, let that person become an idolatry to you and serve God also. You cannot serve this job that you work seven days a week and that's all you can think about and think you're going to have fellowship with the Lord. That's what he's saying here. Anything, anyone, God must be number one. He will have it no other way. That's why Paul says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. So he gives a warning and, a, and a, he gives a prohibition here. You're not merely eating with friends at the pagan temples. You are engaged in idolatry that involves association with demons. First, you drink the cup of the Lord, which points to the vertical relationship we have with him. And then you eat the covenantal bread that speaks of the horizontal relationship we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then you share in the table of the Lord where the focus is on proclaiming his death until he comes. Through the death of the Lord, and we celebrate that, so also we do when we eat with unbelievers, Paul says, at the pagan table. He says in verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Wow. The gist of what Paul is saying, I like the way it explains it here, or will you continue eating at both meals and arouse the Lord's jealousy? He gives an example in the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 21. He says, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. I'm reminded, Ophir Renfrey said, that tripped her up. Don't let it trip you up that God gets jealous. He loves us. He cares for us. He has a jealousy of love that he wants the best for us. And we sometimes think we know better than God. And he's saying, no, 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 no. My way is better. My way is best. It might not look like it now, but continue to have faith and walk with me. And in the long run, you will see 
that my way is better. And it's because I love you. I'm glad he gets jealous for me. I don't know about you. That shows me he loves me. He says in Deuteronomy 32, 21, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy. And I'm glad this happened by those who are not a nation. Speaking of the Gentiles, I will move them to anger. Speaking of the Jews by a foolish nation. Thank you, Jews. And that's precisely what he does. He says in Exodus 25, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Wow. So he says, are we stronger than he? Paul asked the question. No, we're not stronger than God. God jealousy cannot be challenged with impunity. That's what he's wanting us to know. Those who put God to the test by insisting on their rights, because that's what the Corinthians are doing, and that's what idolatry always boils down to. That's what uh, arguing with God always boils down to. Uh, I know best, God. You don't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. Paul insists that's idolatry. That's the effects of it. He says in Isaiah 45, 9 through 10, Woe to him who strives with his maker. We've never done that. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherd of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall, you, or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, why are you begetting? Or to the woman who have, have brought you forth. Keep in mind that this was the response to their letter that they had wrote Paul. They were arguing for their rights to attend pagan feasts and were trying to build one another up to go with them to these feasts. Paul says, no, can't do that. Not only is this totally unloving to the person, the other believer you're trying to go to the feast with, but it's unloving and it's incompatible toward the one who died on the cross for you and that who you celebrate at the Lord's table. And he lets them know that the attendance to these feasts is absolutely forbidden again. Paul, suddenly he changes gears and says, however, I want you to understand, not everything is absolute. There is still matters of indifference here. And he begins to talk to them about absolutes and non-essentials. People say gray areas. It can be. There's really no gray areas in Victor's camp, but uh, non-essentials and indifference here. The Corinthians, we have to understand, had tried to make the temple attendance a matter of indifference. You can go if you want to. There's no problem if you go. It's okay. But for Paul, it was an absolute. It was an absolute no because it was a form of idolatry, and Paul knew it. At the same time, they had confused, they had confused the true basics for Christian behavior. For them, as like it was in the first chapter of the book of Corinthians, it was all about knowledge, how much you knew. And the more you knew, the more puffed up you become. 
and rights. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. It's my own body. I can do what I want to. I have a right to do these things. For Paul, because he was a disciple of Jesus Christ, it is a question, and it should be for every believer in Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be about rights anymore. Am I loving my neighbor? I'm free to do these things, but is it going to be a benefit to my neighbor? That's what it's about. Knowledge and rights lead to pride. We know that. And they're ultimately not truly Christian values. The bottom line is selfishness, the right to do what I please and when I please. Love and freedom leads to edification, a building up of a person. That's what Jesus did. And if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we should be building up people, not tearing them down. And you build them up and you speak the truth in love that they might come to know Jesus Christ, that they might be saved. And the settings Paul presents this is is in food at the temple. He says in verse 23, all things are lawful for me, meaning I have a right to do anything. That's what I just said. And you better believe they said, you said this, Paul. You said I couldn't do this. You said I couldn't do that. Paul says, hold on, wait a minute. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Remember, this was their slogan. This was their motto. For the Corinthians, this meant to act in freedom whenever and wherever they saw fit. It didn't matter about my neighbor. I have the right to do this, so I'm going to do it. But for Paul, it meant the right to become a slave to everyone. For Paul, because he kept his eyes on the master, Jesus Christ, and he watched him walk, he says, I need to be a slave to everybody. It's not about my rights anymore. Yeah, I can do this. Yeah, I can. I'm going to take some of you. I don't know if anybody's back here as old as I am, but I'm going to talk to you anyway. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about it's my right that if I pop that top of a Coke 45 and drink it, I have the right to do that. But if it makes my brother or sister stumble, I will become a teetotaler for life. That's what Paul is saying because he's been watching Jesus Christ. He has said, I'll give up, I'll give up eating food if it's going to make my brother or sister stumble. That's walking in love. He's got his eyes on Jesus and he's caring for everybody else. He says in verse 24, let no one, let no one seek his own. Wow. Is that hard? Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, but it can be done. It can be done. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Yeah, yeah. You can tell Paul's been sitting, not talking, 
and listening to his Savior. For Paul, the death of Christ in which he gave himself for us is not only God's offer of pardon to sinners, but also it shows the proper model of discipleship. You hear of these disciples, let's take this disciple class. I've got a discipleship to do. Discipleship is you have no rights. You shouldn't have any rights. That's what Jesus did. He didn't have any rights. Paul didn't have any rights. Paul says, I'll become whatever I need to become in order that you may be saved. That's selflessness. And that's what it's about, being selfless. Freedom does not mean to seek what pleases me, not even my own good. Rather, it means to be free in Christ in such a way that one can truly benefit and build another person up. That's what we're here for. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question. I heard Pastor Brian say this. I think we were at one of the parks when he said that statement. And I said, you've been reading the book, haven't you? Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. Notice what he says, for the earth is the Lord's and all is fullness. I love that. Because what Paul is saying, before it gets to the temple, before they say their prayer and do their ritual of it, God has blessed us with this T-bone state. So no matter what blessings they have said over it, we know where it comes from. And so it doesn't matter. He goes on to say in verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invites you, here's, he changes gear, if any of those who do not believe, speaking of non-believers, invites you to dinner and you desire to go, I love that, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions. Now, why would he say that? Not to ask any questions. He says, for conscience sake. But then he explains himself, but if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. Again, looking at the, 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 the welfare of the other. And then he says, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Psalms 24. Verse 29, conscience. Paul says, I say not your own. You know the truth. You know better. You can eat anything that's presented in front of you. That's what uh, Jesus was telling Peter on that rooftop. Peter, kill and eat. All these animals, all these, I don't think fish was in there. You shouldn't eat seafood. <laughs> all this other stuff, eat it. Eat it. I've provided it for you. Now, I'm joking about seafood. I just don't like seafood, by the way. Verse 29, conscience, Paul says, I say not your own. You know the truth, believers, but that of the other. Then he says, for why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? In a society today when all we talk about is my rights, I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. My, my, my. I have a right to do anything I want to do. Paul looks at Christ and his sacrifice and us, and it motivates him to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He gives up 
his right. That's, that's being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. When I can, it's not about, listen, it's not about right or wrong. You can throw those away. God knows what's true. I bend my will. As long as I'm not approaching anyone with, the, with, with untruths, as long as I'm following the Lord, hey, I can, I can do without. That's what he's saying here. My freedom does not matter. Paul says, but if I partake with thanks, why am, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Verse 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the key. Give no offense either to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Paul lives a surrendered life. Jesus Christ lived a surrendered life. It's not about should I or shouldn't I, you guys. It's not about I have a right to do this, but am I going to make another stumble by me doing this? I have, a, I have more concern about someone stumbling than my freedoms to do something. That's living selflessly, and that's what Jesus has called us to do. That's how we live. And then this is a terrible chapter break because this 11.1, you don't have to turn there, but we're going to look at it real quick. He says, after all he said, he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul is saying, I follow Christ. I love Christ. And the way I show I love Christ is I walk like I do. I honor him. And Jesus gave up all his rights and comes to earth to an unloving, an uncaring people who spat in his face, who pulled out his beard, who crucified him, and you know he had the right to fight back, but he gave all those rights up that he may birth you and you and you. And now what he tells us, you really don't have any rights. Victor, you really don't have any rights. What you have and what you've been commissioned to do is to love one another. I can't wait till we get to the chapter 13, that, that chapter on love, because that's what it boils down to, loving one another and speaking the truth in love. The worship team can come up. You know I got, I, I've got to close with Philippians Speaking of rights, chapter 2, verse 5 through 13, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. We don't like that. I'm nothing. Taking the form of a bondservant. And coming in likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Have you had to become that obedient yet? 
I love it when Hebrews says, you have not suffered to the shedding of blood yet. You haven't arrived yet. So toughen up. That's really what it says. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. You know what? If you put others first and you yourself have no rights and you're serving God and doing all those things, the holier you are down here, the better you will experience the kingdom of God. I believe that. I believe that. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's, that's what it's about. It's not about rights. We have plenty of those. It's about saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to lay down my rights for my brother or sister hoping and praying that they may see Christ Jesus in me and give their lives to you. That's how Paul lived. That's how the disciples lived. First century Christians lived. And that's how we should live. There's something higher than right or wrong. And that's getting to the kingdom and allowing others to get there by watching us. Imitate me as I follow Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in us. That shouldn't be a ooh-wow statement. We have the right engine in us. But we've got to push the gas and we've got to use the Holy Spirit. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in us. I hope I get this right. I've been listening to this, I can't even think of the artist right now, Mercy Me song. It's been out for a while, but I really just sat down and heard the word, listened to the words of it. And in one of the lines, he said, driving 35 with a rocket inside, didn't know what I had. And I said, that's marvelous. How many people, how many of us are driving 35 with a rocket inside, Jesus Christ, and we don't know what we have. We have the power to live a godly life. We have a power, the power inside of us to when people see us, our behavior and how we act, they ought to automatically say, man, those are peculiar people. Those are strange people. He's been with Jesus Christ. That's what pleases Jesus. We have the capability, we have the ability for non-believers to say things like that, y'all. But we have to surrender our lives to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you allowed us to enter your race. And Lord, we ask you now for the grace to keep us that our eyes stay focused on you, that we think of the now more 
the then more than the now, that we may live a holy life and draw many people to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song.